Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with NHL Hall of Famer, Mike Madano. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with an eight-time NHL All-Star. He was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2014. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Madonna. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You got it. Looking forward to it. We don't get many hockey guys. We've got a, we've got a few. We've got a few. We had Grant Fear on. Uh, Jeremy Roenick, now I got I got Mike Madonna. I'm excited about it. Wow. And get a get a little education about on the ice. <laughs> well, you saved the best for last. Yes, yeah, yeah, that I did. Um, baseball versus hockey. I want to know how you guys handle business, the business uh, on the ice. Baseball, you know, there's been a lot made about what are the rules, what are the unwritten rules. Uh, but I'm just interested how everything goes. You guys have captains in hockey. You know, we got fake captains in baseball. I, I had a buddy, my short, my my partner up the middle in Cincinnati, Barry Larkin. They gave him a captain uh, C on his jersey. I laughed. I said, "There's no, there's no captains in baseball. What, what can you do that we can't do?" I know hockey; it's different. So I'm really interested in that. So, you know, getting hit by a by a fastball on the ribs, it, it, we don't like it. Uh, but it's part of the game. You guys throw yourself in front of slap shots. I want to hear all about that. <laughs> What's that like? I, I mean, I can't imagine it, you know. We'll get uh, first with the captaincy. Um, I think with hockey, it just has always been a long-going tradition where you had someone who represented the team on the ice and was a little bit more of a bridge guy between the coaching staff and the players and feeling a guy that could help, uh, I guess, um, you know, get involved as far as what the details and how the team wants to play as far as the coach, the strategies and details of the game and uh, having a captain who um, who believes in those uh, ideas and strategies, and that would help, you know, translate that to the players. And more, more so, it's it's more of a guy who leads by example. It's not very. It's not been a very vocal guy. It's always been someone who, you know, shows up early, trains hard in the off season, works hard during practice. Um, you know, he's consistent day in and day out. You get the same guys, same personality, same person. So um, it was more, you know, I've been around guys who were more of that guy, Steve Eiserman, Joe Sackick, even Mark Messier to a point, Gretzky. A lot of the great captains were lead by example guys. You know, they weren't rah-rah. They didn't have the best speeches in the world, but, you know, how they performed and played was more so this this is guy this is the guy that everybody's going to get behind and follow and do what they can and try to uh, to keep up with this individual. So I think that's where that kind of comes from. And um, 
you know, it's, you know, then, you know, the other aspect of it, you know, it, he's the, he's the party planner, you know, he gets the Halloween party ready. And, you know, so there's a little bit more of a, uh, of a socializing uh, title that goes with it to get every, keep everybody as far as a team and don't feel like anybody excluded from the group and everybody feels involved and part of the team. So, I think that's where that comes from. And I think as far as like you're talking police in the game, I think that's that part of the game has really been the real change of the game since probably 2000. I think you find less and less of those type of guys in the game who do the policing that go out there and make sure the top guys are protected, that they don't have to really be asked upon to be uh, any type of fighter or play a physical aspect of the game. They can just go out and play. So those guys usually fought one another. So, you know, we don't have those guys anymore. So it's, it's, it's the game's evolved to the point where it's, it's, it's such a more skilled um, fast paced game and, and, and more so the refs do the policing. Now they keep tabs, you know, they got a, they have a uh, committees that keep track of the hits to the head suspensions, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, the game certainly has changed where guys don't take, uh, policing into their own hands anymore. That's a good point, because I think all sports at the top level, I think they're all headed that way. It's definitely, you know, my last years were in the early 2000s, and and it was a different time there, you know, and the game's changing. It's 2022. I don't expect it to be like when I played or, or, or the generation before me. Sports, just like everything else in life, I think evolves. Some things we like uh, that are evolving. I, you know, a lot of things I look at in today's baseball game and say, "Wow, that's cool." I wish I had access to that when I was playing. But some things, you know, probably like probably like yourself, right? Like a lot of guys that played in a different era think, "Wow." You know, what's going on? You know, I don't really dig that. I don't know how the guys of today would handle that. I think when you're talking about the captaincy, it is then kind of similar to baseball because the captain was more of a symbol thing to put on his uniform, kind of the leader of that team. And like you said, wasn't a guy that gets on his soapbox and makes speeches, but a guy more, especially younger guys that are just getting to the big leagues or, or just getting right. to the NHL, kind of a guy to look after and go, I want to be like him how he carries himself, how he does takes care of business. And obviously usually really good player helps too, to, to have that leadership uh, quality. But uh, so it sounds kind of similar and not as, as different as, as uh, I thought it was talking about the fights, baseball, weak fights. We, we, you know, we clear the benches. It's usually a, Hey, how you doing type of breaking it up type situation. About one out of every 10 baseball fights, you'll get some, you'll, you'll get some guys that go at it pretty good and it's, it can get pretty nasty. But for the most part, you've seen our fights. We get out there and yeah, this guy hit him. So now we're going out once again. 2022 not as many fights guys don't hit guys on purpose like they used to in my generation hockey's different though it's still the only sport where you can just hey you drop the gloves you go at it and it's kind of accepted in the sport it's it's amazing to me how the rest of the guys two guys go at it the rest of the ice teammates just sit around and watch like okay this is this is how we do it like men uh how does that is there etiquette to it I mean, do you have to call the other guy out? Um, well, uh, going off personal experience, I've had one and it didn't 
go very well. It was over really quick. And I was like, I'll, I'll never do that again. I'm like, this is, uh, you know, they, they, they don't pay me enough to do the fighting me too. So I'm like, Oh, but I, I, from what I've seen and been around some of the toughest guys in the game, I got, uh, luckily I had them on my team. Um, there is a little bit of an etiquette, you know, there's a little bit of eye contact and a little bit of, uh, you know, an, uh, an, an invite that's sent. And then, you know, if he doesn't want to have it, that's fine. If he takes it, then, you know, that, Hey, don't, no one's getting jumped. No one's getting bum rushed and no one's, uh, getting surprised that this is going down. So everybody's, uh, very, uh, clear and open about it. So there's no surprises. So that, in that sense, there's always been like a, an integrity to it, an honor system where, you know, yeah, no one, uh, Unless it gets really out of hand and you have some um, some rivalries that we've had against Edmonton or even Colorado that, you know, sometimes there's uh, lines that are crossed and then, you know, everybody's free game. So it becomes a little bit uh, of uh, better keep your head on a swivel, especially at playoff time because things can uh, get ramped up. But normally nine times out of ten or even, you know, um, there's a little bit of uh, – of uh, it's a, it's an open invite, and then there's um, you know then then guys take care of their business, and then you know they uh, pat each other on the back, and you know they go to the bench and or the box for five minutes, and then uh, they're that's all done, it's over with. No, it's pretty awesome. I mean, to think, uh, I watch him and I'm like, wow, it's like all right, we're done. You know, that's over with. It's squashed. We move on. In baseball, and something like that happens, you get suspended for a month. But that's the difference. And, and it's, you know, it's never been the culture of baseball. It is the culture in hockey. I don't know. I think it's a cool yeah. aspect to it. I, I love watching. Yeah. And, I, and I think a lot of people do. Fans of the game love watching that aspect of it. Sure. Um, amateur hockey and real hockey. <laughs> and I say real. I don't mean that. It's kind of in jest. Uh, baseball, it's, it's basic. You're a kid. Uh, you play little league, you know. You you play high school baseball. Now there's it's tr- it's changed a little bit. I played Connie Mack. I played Babe Ruth. Now they play travel ball. Uh, then you go on to college. Uh, the top guys out of high school get get drafted and go to the minor leagues. Right right there. But but the majority of 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 major league baseball players they go to college. And then there's the pro ranking. Hockey. Explain it to me a little bit. I know there's peewee. I know there's junior hockey, minor league hockey. What is the cycle? I know for you, you were drafted, I believe, as an 18-year-old. You went right right to the NHL. I think that's pretty rare. Uh, some guys do like a Mike Trout in our game, a Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, they got drafted, and he wasn't in the minor leagues very long. He's in the big leagues when he's 18 years old. Uh, I know that happened to you, but what is the normal timeline and and – the hockey career of a young hockey player till he makes his debut in the NHL. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very similar to baseball where you have, uh, you know, some, some States more than others have a very, very good traditional minor hockey system. Like I grew up in Detroit. Um, we were lucky. We had, uh, Mike Illich involved with little Caesars. So we had a great backing, a great sponsor in minor hockey, um, Copyware, who was owned by uh, um, uh, Mike Harmonis, he uh, eventually bought the Hartford Whalers, moved them to Carolina, and became the Hurricanes. He was very involved in the Detroit area too. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we were we were the benefit of some good minor hockey. So it's a, it's the same route. You know, you go through, um, you know, your Pee Wees, Bantams, Midgets. You come to your fifteen year old, sixteen year old kids. 
you know, for me in my time, there was a decision to be made whether to go to Canada, play world uh, in junior hockey, which span from, you know, New Brunswick to Vancouver. There's three major junior leagues, Ontario, Quebec, and the Western Hockey League. So you had your option to go up there after your sophomore year of high school, um, or you could stay back in the States and wait till you're 18 to get recruited by college. The only difference is when you go to Canada, you get per diem, which is back then in the eighties, you know, you got 50 bucks Canadian every two weeks or something, um, you know, for lunch money and go to the movies once in a while. But in the NCAAs, you are considered a paid athlete. So you would lose your college eligibility. So if you went there for a year, you didn't like it and wanted to go back home to play Michigan State or, you know, Denver University, you couldn't do it because you were paid. So a lot of those incidences have changed over the time. Um, you know, so I, I vied to go to Canada. So I went to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, played my junior hockey there for two years, got drafted Minnesota in 88. You know, the good thing, you know, there's a double-edged sword. You know, you get drafted so high, but you know you're going to the worst team in the league. So your, your, your chances of probably making the big club are good because they really have no upside and they want to get you in there and get you acclimated and get you up and running as quick as possible. So, um, you know, there's, there's incidences where those top picks do kind of roll right into their major team and kind of look like they don't miss a beat. And, and it's, you know, you can count them on one hand, maybe in the last 20, 25 years that that's happened, you know, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, guys like that, that just have this level of game. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's not normal. So, um, you know, they, they've kind of, uh, they've kind of rewritten the book on that, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing, but the normal, I guess, uh, direction would be to get drafted. You either go back to college, you finish it out, you go to the American Hockey League team, which is the farm team affiliate of whoever the NHL might be. You might spend a year or two there just kind of getting used to the speed, the size, the travel, this and that. So then you become probably a 23, 24-year-old rookie um, in the NHL. So that's kind of where the the uh, the difference is, you know, if you, if you are a high pick, you will probably start fairly early by, you know, 19, 20, the latest, but you know, anything after the first round, it's kind of hit or miss. So you might be, you know, um, just getting out of college somewhere in the mid twenties before you get started there. And it is probably, it's probably the most similar, these two sports are the most similar baseball and hockey. You play a lot of games. Yeah. There is a minor league system set up. I don't think, you know, baseball, there's, well, up until recently, they're starting to pair back now, but we've always had one, uh, you know, six minor league levels. Uh, whereas, what? How many, how many minor league teams does each franchise have in the NHL? Oh, boy. You know, some have probably a little bit of, some may be affiliated with three, but there's a, there's a level to them. Like the American hockey league probably is your number one uh, affiliate to the NHL. So guys who make it to the NHL probably come out of the American league. You got the uh, central hockey league, the East coast league. So no, those are tier downs from those. So 
Right. You know, in, in order to get out of the East Coast, you might have to go to the Central Hockey League, to the American Hockey League, and then the NHL. So the road to the NHL, if you're below the AHL, American Hockey League, might be might be a tough um, tough route to go. Um, it's been done, but very rare can you find a guy that just kind of comes up through that whole system and makes it. So, um, uh, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's very similar to Major League Baseball. Childhood, you mentioned you grew up in Michigan, uh, read somewhere. You started skating at around seven years old. Uh, what was Mike McDonald like as a little kid? Was it always hockey? Did you have? Did you? Did he like any other sports? Um, you know, I was I was very good into baseball. Uh, you know, we were seasonal, so hockey uh, obviously winter. We did baseball in the summer, did a little bit of uh, football in the fall. Um, but yeah, I was a little bit of a, a hyperactive kid, got in trouble a lot. Um, my dad was involved in the construction business. Um, so he had a lot of kids that would come out and help him build some homes in the summer that were looking for extra pay that were out of college or that were in college. And, um, he had, a he had three brothers that all played hockey. One was at Michigan state. One was at St. Lawrence and one kid was at, uh, Fort Wayne of the uh, International Hockey League at the time back in the mid-70s, um, you know, that were big hockey guys. My dad was a bit of a fan. He was from Boston, so grew up a Bruins fan. And, um, you know, so there's, there was a little bit of hockey there, but I, I had not skated up until my dad talked to these guys at work and said, man, Mike's getting in trouble. I don't know what to do. And so they, you know, they suggested, oh, I want you to, take him to hockey, see, you know, take him skating and see what happens. And, and that was it. You know, the first time I set foot on the ice, I, I, I knew this was, that was it for me. I just took it. I was just crazed about it. You know, I, I couldn't get enough of it. We lived on the lake in Michigan, so that would freeze over in the winter, obviously. And, you know, I'd be out there from, you know, dawn till night. So it was, uh, it was just a, a fluky kind of thing. Uh, just a suggestion from my dad's worker and, uh, it uh, it uh, it was a uh, thank God for his suggestion. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember my early days because I loved playing hockey. Now I never took it serious, you know. From from ever since I can remember, all I wanted to do was be a baseball player. So I was always playing baseball. But just like you said, I grew up in Jersey, and when the lakes would freeze over, we'd get out there and snow. You know, we'd shovel the ice and. Man, next yeah. thing you know, everybody school ends and everybody's out there. We were playing pickup games. That what we do all. That's what we do all winter. I never got it to a point where I played anything organized, but I do remember those times. I couldn't wait to get home and shovel that lake and play. Um, oh, you, you took it to another level, and that that became your passion and what you did. Uh, Dad, was it Dad that was the big fan of uh, Ted Williams and and kind of a. Yeah. Uh, you know, along with Gordy, how how you ended up getting the number nine? I remember my gramps. My gramps talked about Ted. He played with Ted in Boston his final two years uh, in the big leagues until the day he died. Man, I'll tell you, he told me a hundred Ted Williams story. But tell me about Dad and Ted Williams and how number nine came came to be. Um, well, uh, kind of like that scenario. He he was a Boston kid. He grew up there. Was a big, uh, obviously, Red Sox fan and. Bruins and and that and whatnot. So um, yeah, he was a big Ted Williams fan. Um, you know, then it became you know the Red Sox in the mid '70s when they were kind of making their runs there. Um, and then you know, being uh, in the six, seven, eight years old, we spent a lot of time in in Boston in the summer. 
So, God, saw tons of games at Fenway. Just thought it was the coolest thing. And go to Boston Gardens in the winter. We usually went over there for the holidays and at Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we'd see a lot of Bruins games and, you know, um, you know, big Johnny Buchek was number nine, I think, in Boston at the time. And, you know, they had uh, the nasty Bruins, Terry O'Reilly and Stan Jonathan. And, um, but, um, yeah, those, uh, and then obviously Detroit, you know, who's, who doesn't want to be nine with Gordy Howe there. And, um, you know, being in Detroit, we got a lot of hockey night in Canada games, being close to uh, Sarnia, Ontario, across the river there. We would get tons of hockey night in Canada games. So, um, you know, you had Lenny McDonald was number nine in Toronto and, you know, we could get some Montreal Canadian fan, uh, games as well. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was, uh, pretty much Johnny Butek, Ted Williams and Gordy Howell that kind of got the nine going for me. Moved to Westland, uh, midget major team at 14, 1985, uh, U.S. hockey national championship. You're on that team. Uh, Let's fast forward to 1988 draft drafted number one overall by the Minnesota North Minnesota North stars going into that draft. Did you know it was going to be, you were going to be that pick and how does that change your life right then? Um, well, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously things are covered a lot different than they were in 88. So I, I had just, uh, uh, that previous winter we had the world junior championships, which is, is a, which is a, you know, pretty much, a an Olympics for 16 and 17 year olds. So we had it in Moscow at that time. And, and there was another fellow that was playing in Canada, uh, Trevor Linden, who was playing in the, actually the same league I was in out in the Western hockey league. So we had come back from that junior tournament and the central scouting ratings came out. Um, and Trevor and I were kind of like this one, a one B we're kind of going one and two. So there's really was this competition from probably mid January till the end of playoffs in our, our leagues that, uh, you know, who was going to go one or two, um, Minnesota obviously had the first pick Vancouver Canucks had the number two pick. I went and saw and visited Minnesota's, um, kind of, uh, scouts and GMs and owners and Traverse City's Michigan for a little uh, summer scouting meetings. And so I went there for a little bit and met all of them. Uh, went to Vancouver and met with uh, the Canucks brass and some of the players and this and that. And just kind of like your little um, uh, tour, uh, tour t- two trips of those two teams. So we, we all knew it was going to come down to those two. Uh, you know, I think it's a little different than it is now people really know if you're one you're going to go to this team and everybody knows that before the draft we really didn't know who was going one or two up until Lou Nanny at the time who was the GM of the North Stars um, went up to the podium to make their pick so we were we were really nervous up until the point and we didn't know what was going to happen um, you know so uh, lo and behold, he makes the announcement. And then, you know, at that point I was like, yeah, I was, I was, I was excited. I was an American, obviously going to a U.S. team in Minnesota where hockey is just like, uh, a religion in Minnesota. So I was excited about that, uh, that selection and being back, back there. So it, it, it changed a lot. Like I said, you're, you know, you know, it's a great honor and, um, uh, great thing to have happen, but you know, you're going to a, an organization who's trying to find themselves and 
you know, trying to uh, change the direction of the whole organization. So there's a little bit of pressure instantly that comes with that selection. So, but it uh, it took some time. It took a lot of uh, patience on the on the management organization side to, uh, you know, to allow you know myself to probably grow up a little and get a little bigger and faster and and try to hopefully evolve into that guy that they were hoping that uh, they saw on draft day. It's always interesting, especially the one, one, I mean, first round picks a big deal anyway. You know, I know in the baseball world, Oh, here comes, you know, here comes the first round pick. It's always the talk, you know, let's see what he's got. Who's this guy. Uh, but when you're one, one different level, um, what are they? Because we came up at a similar time. Your first year, I think, uh, the eighty nine ninety season in the NHL. I, I got right. to, the, to to the big leagues in ninety two. So we're coming up at a at a similar time. How were the, how did the players receive you coming in one one? I I know that uh, in the baseball world back in those days. I was very well received, but it was that tough love. You know, I had yeah. uh, it was a it was a time in 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 the early nineties where you kind of had to earn your stripes. Yeah. We like you. You're cool, but sit up in the front of the bus, shut up. And when you earn the right, we'll let you come back here with us. You know, always giving me a hard time, but at the same time, man, I was grinding when I first got there. It's like, I just got to prove, you know, I did my, what I did in the minor leagues. I got to prove that I'm a big leaguer and I'm, my hair was on fire. And, and, you know, I, like you said, there is a growing up process that comes with that going from, uh, amateur, amateur sports to, to the big leagues. That's a big deal going from where you were going to the NHL. That's a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. how did the players receive you? Was it similar to, to my story or was it welcome with open arms from the get go? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it was very similar. I think it's a lot of, it was a lot of tough love. It's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, don't speak until spoken to and, you know, uh, come ready to play, show up, work hard, get on the ice early, stay after late, you know, put your, uh, put your time and sweat in and, uh, don't expect this to come easy for you. And it really did, you know, you, you come in, uh, touted and you come in with all these accolades and these numbers that you put up. Um, but it doesn't flow that easy when you get into the, uh, with bigger players that are faster, they're stronger, they're meaner, they hit, the goalies are better, you know? So, you know, you don't, the numbers didn't kind of match up with what I was doing in juniors. So you, you do get a little frustrated, but you do learn that it's, it, it'll, it'll take time to, um, you know, to adjust and to catch up to this type of speed. But, um, yeah, there's, there was tough love, uh, a lot from the players. I think, uh, they all wanted you to do well and get acclimated as quick as possible because it, it would help benefit the team. But, uh, you know, big picture was like, Hey, you know, you're, you know, you got to put your time in like all the rest of us did. And, uh, don't expect it to come easy. Don't expect us to, uh, you know, roll out the red carpet for you. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to take your lumps and you're going to learn. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I came up in that era as opposed to now, because I think it, there's such a dis, uh, separation from the two where I think kids nowadays are, they're kind of anointed. They're come in with, you know, expectations. They become, you know, uh, 
I give, I think they give, they're given this, um, respect factor that they haven't really done anything yet. Um, very sensitive, don't like to be called, uh, uh, singled out or called any names. You know, they take things very personal. They get very sensitive if they, if they're spoken about to in a wrong, uh, in the wrong language, they're not thick skinned at all. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's a bit of a change in the personnel, I think as well. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I enjoyed my era. I had the best time. The guys were great. Uh, they're very tough, but I think it in the big picture and as, uh, my career unfolded, I'm, I was very thankful and glad I came up at that time. No, you, you said it right. It is. And, and I think it transcends all sports right now. I mean, I remember, Mike, it's uh, it probably my eighth or ninth year. And I finally got a, a call from the Nike guy. <clears throat> and he says, hey, Brett, we're going to let you, you know, design your own shoe. Oh, I was like kidding Christmas. Like, finally, I get to the, I've arrived. I get my own shoe. Now I see guys in, in double A in the minor leagues with their own shoe. And I'm going, if you get that, where are you going to go from there? So, so like you said, in our time, you kind of had to earn everything. And I'm not saying today the kids don't earn their stuff. You know, you play, bottom line is you go out and play well, and, and you prove that you're an NHL or, or an MLB uh player uh, let alone an all-star you're going to have a career and it doesn't really matter but it's how you get there i i like you um i look back on it there were some tough times coming up but it was really fulfilling when or, or maybe that's not the the word rewarding uh when you earned that like when you finally had arrived and you put up those numbers where people you kind of had established yourself it was like wow that was hard getting through that process but but man i it was some humbling time for me and i could reflect back later in my career when things you know and i'd have be going through a tough spot hey remember when you were first coming up how hard that was you got through that and it was a building block for yep. the next for the next frame i think you're right the time we come up uh, having some humility getting getting humbled getting knocked down and getting your ass up off and and coming back and performing well there's there's a lesson in there i think uh, that you really can't you can't experience any other way than going through it and i look back to those early times and i appreciate it especially later in my career i look back and and when you're having an unbelievable year you can you can smile and enjoy it but you appreciate it because you know how hard yep. it is to play at that top level and not a, only play at the top level but at an elite level so uh i don't know i i think it's cool that that process and and, and what you go through uh your first year you're on the all rookie team uh your second year you go to the stanley cup finals you end up losing to the penguins you'll be back later a few years later and you're going to end up winning a stanley cup i wanted to talk about the stanley cup and how special that is and the, and the march to the stanley cup it seems like it's so long uh in the nhl but just like probably a super bowl uh like a world series win you know i got to go to one world series uh we got whooped by the Yankees, but it's a special place. And and I remember during the national anthem looking around and, and I'd been in a lot of special places before I'd been at Yankee stadium a hundred times, but this national anthem was different game three in the world series. Like, all right, I'm somewhere kind of, kind of special here. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the Stanley cup, how special that is. And, uh, 
how hard they are to win. You know, a lot of I'm sure you played with a lot of great players that that never got to go to a Stanley Cup, let alone win one. Um, so the appreciation you have for not only being there, but you ended up winning one later in your career. Just touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I like you said. I think our second year, yeah, our second, my second year, Minnesota, we made like a Cinderella run. We just we were we were so terrible all year long, um, and we had to win. I think we had to win one of our one of our last two games uh, to even have a chance to get in as the number eight seed in our conference. So we, we, we ended up winning one of our games. I think it was in, in Quebec when the Nordiques were still there before they moved to Denver. And then um, something happened. Uh, someone beat someone else that maybe knocked someone out. So we ended up in the eight seed in 91. So we had to play the number one team, which was Chicago, who was the president's trophy winner the top team in the whole league throughout the year. And we ended up beating them in six, which was, you know, on, you know, uncalled back then, like no one, no eight beat one back then. Cause the discrepancy, when we got into the playoffs with 67 points, like, you know, so now you don't play like this day, like, you, you know, you play till someone wins or you go into a shootout to get, you know, if you tied, you got one point, and that was it. So we had 67 points. You know, now to get in as an eight seed or seven seed, you have to get like close to mid 90s, high 90s. So that's how much, how bad we were that year. So then our second round, we had to play the second overall team, which was the Blues and Brett Hull and that whole team, and we beat them in six. So now we got to face the Oilers, Edmonton, who just won the previous year. Um, in 90, um, Messier, Paul Coffey, Grant Fuhr, Glenn Anderson, the whole crew from the, uh, dynasty days in eighties with Wayne and them. And we ended up beating Edmonton in five games. So we have Pittsburgh, Mario Lemieux. He has some back issues. We get up two games to one. Mario didn't play game three, so we end up winning 2-1 in Minnesota, and then Mario came back, couldn't lace up his own skates. The equipment manager had to tighten them from, for him because of back spasms, and then they, they railed off three in a row and beat us four games to two, so we were like, you know, two wins away. So a lot of us were pretty young. We're like, oh, we, we can't wait till next year to do this all over again. It's like, well, you know. That was we didn't get a sniff till you know '98 when we played Detroit in the com, you know conference finals and so it's uh, it's it's rare air when you get to the finals, let alone win one. So we we kind of we felt uh, at training camp in '98 uh, that we have a Stanley Cup team, and if we don't win this year, that you may never win it. So we we had the pieces put together. We just had gotten. At Belfour, we picked up Brett Hall. We made some great trades and got some guys who had won in Montreal that were just quality guys. So we had all the we had all the pieces. I mean, we there was no cap back then, so we we just uh, did everything and anything we could to put a lineup together that could win. So, and we ended up getting to that final against Buffalo, and you know, finally overcoming it. We had guys who couldn't barely stand, so we knew. 
if we went to game seven, that probably we'd be missing about three or four more guys uh, out of game seven. So we, we thank God we pulled that off. So, but I think for ultimately just a, a total feeling of, of relief that it was one that it was over one that it was, we won, we went to triple overtime. So we just about got done with six periods and got that thing over with. So, um, yeah, there's just an ultimate feeling of, of just the physical, the mental demand on a hockey playoff run for two months, playing every other day, having to win four, seven game series. Um, it's just, uh, it's another level. I mean, you find out a lot about yourself individually, what you're able to take, uh, what type of toll you're supposed you can take personally, uh, mentally and physically and emotionally. Uh, you find out a lot about your teammates, what you, you know, what you go through. So there's a bond made there that, uh, that's, uh, lasts a, a lifetime. You know, we, we still see each other once in a while, or if we do talk to one another, it's, it's like, uh, we haven't, uh, like we haven't seen a guy, our, our friends in a day. So we just picked up like where we left off. So it's, it was a unique feeling, a situation. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, but, uh, when it does, boy, it's, uh, it's a feeling like no other. Uh, 93 was your first all-star season. Uh, and this was an interesting thing to me. And I, and I try to put myself in the situation. You're a Minnesota North star, but you're going to change it. It's going to be the Dallas stars. It would be like, yeah. I don't, I don't know. You got this fan base. Uh, they're on fire for you. All of a sudden you're going to move to a new city that as an athlete, yeah, when you get traded, that's one thing, but you're moving your group to a new fan. How did Dallas, uh, welcome you? And was it, and what was just, what was it like changing, changing cities? That was, that was a bit of a culture shock. That's like, that's like taking the Yankees out of New York or the Cowboys yeah. out of Dallas. Or, bizarre. Know, I mean, uh, to think the North Stars out of Minnesota, no one thought in a million years that was possible. They felt, we all did, and everybody involved felt, you know, something will be done in the 11th hour, either we'll, We'll stay put at the Met Center in Bloomington, or we'll go down and play the Target Center where the Timberwolves were playing at the time. Um, they were capable of play, making ice, but nothing really seemed to. Nobody seemed to be able to get to common ground to make a deal done, and and then cities started popping in to make suggestions or bids on the team, and you know Seattle, Anaheim was one. Hamilton, just outside Toronto, had a. Uh, NHL arena, um, you know, so we all thought we were uh, heading to one of those cities, but Dallas kind of came out of nowhere at the last second. Um, the city made a pitch, uh, you know, Roger Staubach was very involved in it as well, trying to get us down there. Reunion arena at the time was a little outdated, but you know, they could make ice. The, the Mavericks were there at the time and, um, you know, but we thought still, there's no chance to leave in, you know, Minnesota. I mean, every kid in Minnesota plays hockey. They have the best high school hockey, college hockey, just the whole thing um, there. And, and lo and behold, we, we were told to get to Dallas for training camp. And we're like, wow, this is uh, um, very surprising. We were all in shock. And, you know, we showed up and, 
you know, from day one, the place was packed. I mean, the novelty was, uh, it lasted a long time. Uh, the honeymoon went for a while. Um, there was a lot of transplants from the Midwest and upper East side that, uh, were down there that were missing hockey, but you know, we were, we were turned on to a new fan base that had never seen it. I think they enjoyed the pe- the pace, the speed, the physicalness of it, the, uh, you know, even the, you know, the skill of it, trying to do all this stuff on, on steel, on ice. And, um, you know, so we, we, we turned a fan base that was, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of football fans into hockey fans. And, and we won a lot of new fans over that are still season ticket holders to this day. So it turned out to be a real, uh, you know, blessing in disguise. You know, I, I, I think we we look back at it and we all, you know, never thought in a million years that it would have worked out that well in Dallas uh, up until now. But um, certainly after a few years, we, we started having a really consistent team, and that helped. Um, and then uh, they built the American Airlines Center in 2000, and that uh, that changed the whole complexion of the team. You know, they, they built stands, um, you know, so it was um, – it put Dallas on the map as far as a destination point for free agents and everything else in the NHL. So it, it, it turned some heads after a while, the, the short time we were there. You know, and this is, this is kind of subjective, but we all have our druthers. We, as, as individual players, we all have our favorite arenas to play in. You know, you just seem like, I, I'm sure you had it. You were going to a certain city and you'd just have a lot of success there. So you kind of have a smile on your face. Same with, with hitters, you know, we're going to a certain ballpark. It's like, Oh, all right, I'm, I'm struggling right now, but we're going there. I'm going to get right. Um, if you were to, if you were to, I don't know, take a, take a consensus in the NHL. What is, what's the most desirable place to play in the NHL? Where is there one? Desirable. You know, it's hard to say. I think everybody would have said anywhere in the original six teams, you know, Boston, New York, Detroit, um, Oh, Montreal, Toronto, um, but you know, I think there's been so much success in, in the Southern cities, uh, Tampa Bay for one, who's won a couple of cups. Um, you know, now you got Denver in the mix that's done real well. Um, um, you know, LA had their run there, uh, with Jonathan quick and that whole team. And, and when they were, uh, going back and forth with the Blackhawks, when they were winning, um, you know, so it, it's hard to say. I, I, I mean, I've always been a, an original six guy. I was always an old building kind of guy. I loved, uh, I loved the gardens in New York and Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens, the old forum. Um, you know, I loved the Western forum out in LA. So I was an old kind of building kind of guy where, you know, you felt the fans were right on top of you. Um, it was loud. It was just kind of intimidating, kind of tough surroundings when you went on the road. So I kind of love those type of places to play. Um, but yeah, you know, now you got uh, a lot of corporate sized buildings. Now you got more is uh, better and, you know, suites and restaurants and bars. I think there's a lot of, a lot more distractions going on in arenas rather than being, uh, paying attention to actually what's going on on the ice, you know? So, but uh, it's all about uh, the revenue and finances and making that dollar. So, I mean, you, you build these arenas that are suitable to make some money. And 
Um, so they do become a little bigger. I think you feel like you lose a little bit of that atmosphere and um, that closeness to the fans. But, um, yeah, it's it's been a big change in that sense, too. 97 Central Division title, uh, 98 Western Finals, you're an all-star again. I, we mentioned 99. Uh, Stanley Cup, you're an all-star. You end up being an eight-time all-star. We talked about it at the top. Um 2003, 4, 2007, uh, 500 the goal. Mm-hmm. Take me through it. Pretty big, um, pretty big thing. Yeah, Philadelphia at home. Um, yeah, there wasn't too many. I, I think there wasn't too many numbers that I hit that happened at home. So this was like the one, the one big one that, uh, you know, getting 500 at home and, and, in front of the the fans uh, was a good one. So it was just a uh, you know real shot from the point, rebound, you know that sort of thing. Kind of your basic, uh, simple little goal off to the side. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of the big one. I, I missed some of the the scoring uh, American scoring title ones at home. I would have been I would have loved to have done those in front of the fans after all those years and. You know, so, uh, but five, 500 was a big one. So I, I was glad I had, I had that chance to do it at home. All-star again in 09, uh, 2011, it will be your final year. You go back to Detroit, kind of a coming home party. Uh, was, yep. where were you at that point in your career? Did you know kind of, this is it? I'm, one more hurrah or I, I know how my career ended. I knew, you know, finally when I kind of, I looked in the mirror. I said, this is it. You know, you never, I think when you're young and you're playing, you never think you think you're going to play forever. You, you don't think anything's going to happen all of a sudden yeah. for me anyway, and it's different for everybody, how their career ends. But uh, take me through those final days in that, in that last year in Detroit. Yeah. I mean, it, it all went in a blink of an eye. I mean, I, I, I was told those first few years in Minnesota, how fast it would go. And, um, you know, so you, you, you try to take that all in stride and, you know, you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm a year or a year or two into it. And they're talking, you know, 10 years are going to be like a blink. And, you know, sure enough, you know, you got, you know, 22 later, I was like, man, I was like, this, this is all over and done. You know, now what? And I had just finished my last uh, year in Dallas. So I figured that was it. We, um, um, we had some uh, kind of last hurrah kind of things at the tail end of that last season in Dallas and, you know, was told there I wasn't going to resign. I wanted to do one more year in Dallas and just kind of, you know, do a bit of a farewell tour. I would have loved to have been able to do that, but, you know, they had other ideas and plans. So I was, uh, I was just getting able, just about ready to head over to Scotland with some buddies to go play golf for a week and a half and didn't think of it, anything of it. And then, uh, Kenny Holland, the GM in Detroit called and asked if I'd be willing to do one more year in Detroit. And, uh, I I think if it was anywhere but Detroit, I would have probably passed on it seeing it was the wings and going back home and playing there with some of those players that were there. I said, now I got to, I got to do one more and, and, um, you know, but I, I think as that season unfolded, I think mentally I knew this was it. I think I just didn't have the, you know, the drive to prepare for games and practice or really kind of, uh, stay in top shape. I just didn't have the, 
the drive to do everything in order to perform at a high level. So I knew once that kind of started sliding or slipping from me that I knew I was, that this was it. So, um, you know, once I lost that excitement to do that, you know, I knew that my game would be affected by it and I just wasn't the same person. So I knew that was time, you know, so, um, I was kind of glad it went that way mentally more than physically, rather trying to hold on and trying to keep fighting for it if I still wanted to play, but just my body couldn't keep up. But I'm glad it, I'm glad I, 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 it went the other way for me that I was just mentally drained. I just couldn't do it anymore, but still healthy enough to, to feel like I could have a good life after, after hockey. What a career. 1,499 games, 561 goals, <laughs> most points ever by an American-born, 1,374. Uh, voted in 2017, 100, 100 greatest NHL players ever. And the big one, you know, I think uh, uh, 2014, uh, you get inducted to the Hall of Fame, you get that – what, what's that phone call like? I, I know with your numbers and the career you had, uh, it, pretty obvious you were gonna you were gonna get the call. But is it? You know, I was talking to Chipper Jones on the on the podcast. Chipper was an obvious Hall of Famer when it when his name came up. But I asked him. He goes and he said, "Booney." He goes, "You kind of think so, but you never you never you never mail it in until that phone rings." Uh, was that similar for you getting that call for the Hall of Fame? Yeah, you figure you're like, God, you, you know, you, you, you feel your numbers are good enough to get in, I, you know, or, you know, you played long enough, you won once, you got, you know, nominated a few times for, like, some individual stuff. But, you know, like, you know, uh, same as Chipper, you just don't, you know, you don't know, you can't, you know, like, mail it in, you know, you're for a first balloter until, you know, I knew my third year of, of um, the grace period of waiting was over. So I knew in July that those calls start going out. So, um, and, you know, sitting around at the house, I think one morning and I, I, I noticed a four one six, which is Toronto. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's no names of tag to it. So I'm like, Oh, it must be someone different. And, uh, John Davidson was on the other side and, uh, you know, he wanted to, congratulate me on being nominated. So I was like, oh, I mean, that was just, uh, you know, one of those things you can put a bow on it and be so content with what you did. You felt like you put everything into it. You, you know, you didn't, you know, you felt you took a, a lot of days off where you felt, man, you just weren't into it. But, you know, for the most part, you felt like you, uh, you know, showed up and we're consistent enough to kind of get to this point and play long enough and healthy enough to be lucky enough to be around some great players. And, um, but yeah, you get the call. You're like, Oh, this was, you know, it was, uh, that, that was the big one. I mean, on top of everything else, I mean, uh, you can take everything else, but you know, that one was, uh, that was the topper. Yeah. Your number retired too. that nine that was hooked to so many, uh, you know, greats from your childhood that you remembered. Uh, I always think that's kind of extra special too. It's like, you know, there's a, guys that go in the hall fit, but then you get the number and it's like, well, in that, for that team, Dallas stars, no one will ever wear that number again. I always think that's kind of a, a one up. It's pretty cool. You know, getting, going to that hall of fame. Great. Being a Dallas stars hall of famer. Great. But you get the number retired. Not too many people get the number retired. That also happened for you in 2014. 
you know, it's cool when when uh, when I have a Hall of Famer on NFL, NBA, uh, hockey, whatever it may be, baseball. It's funny because it's always a similar thing to what we talked about. It's when you finally get that call, it's like, oh, something comes over you like it really it's real now. And the only the, you know, I told you the chipper story. The only funny one I had was Greg Maddox comes on and Maddox. He, he, uh, he was a teammate of mine in ninety nine. We play golf together quite a bit. <laughs> and I asked him that question about the Hall of Fame. You don't do you never know until you know it. He goes, oh, no, I know. He goes, how are you going to keep me out? <laughs> he goes, how can you keep me out? I have 370 wins. And, and when he's right, he's right, but I've never heard it put that way. It was kind of pretty honest of him, but at the same time, it was kind of funny to me. Um, that's, uh, that's a mad dog for you, though. He'll just Mad dog. Yeah, dog. He's just like, yeah, Boone, come on. Of course I got it. Yeah. What do you think? It was great. Um, executive advisor now for the Minnesota Wild. You enjoying that? I am. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm able to do it, uh, more so from Phoenix out here in Arizona. So I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, helping consulting, seeing some games here in uh, Arizona. So I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm just a little connected. I played, uh, uh, the GM Billy Guerin. I played with him a, a lot on the Olympic teams and, uh, in Dallas for a little bit. Uh, Dean Evans and the coach, I played against them and played with them in Dallas. So, there's some uh, connection with those two guys. They're, they're great guys. They're old school. So I, I enjoy being around them um, and being back in Minnesota. You know, you miss a lot of great fans that are still watching the wild that were North star fans. I just love the game and, and missed it. So um, I enjoy it. I, 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 I love still having a little bit of uh, my foot in the game and, you know, being around the, the roster guys and, and having some fun with them. So it's, it's neat to see and, need to still be involved. I, 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 I knew when I was done, I didn't, I needed to be away from the game for a good long time. And I had, I was for about, you know, good six, seven years. So it was good to get back into it. And, um, you know, wild, the great, great ownership, great, uh, management, great organization. So I was, I was happy to get, uh, you know, get back in the mix with those guys and I, I've enjoyed it. It's been, it's been fun. Uh, Mike Madonna Foundation. Tell me about that. Uh, again, we we got that going in Dallas, probably in the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, we, we we were involved with um, um, a fundraiser with Jonathan's Place uh, for kids that were under 13, just from tough families. Uh, um, abused, obviously neglected, abandoned kids. Uh, we took newborns in, so we had, uh, you know, babies till 12 years old. So it was, the, it was the first house of that built in Dallas, and we built some more cabins out in Garland with Boone Pickens um, and some of the other guys uh, locally, so we were able to create four or five more houses, and then we kind of I'm a kind of a dog guy, so we got into some uh, canine rescue um, fundraising, and then obviously with um, uh, all the war stuff and the military people coming back, so we, we started helping some families who couldn't make ends meet after coming back from war, some of the bills, some of the things that they have trouble with uh, trying to make ends meet back uh, in um, back here in Homeland, so we're we're pretty lucky we got we feel like we got uh three good uh 
three good things that we're, we're pretty proud of. So we're, we're holding on to those three and, you know, we, we, we bounce back in Dallas once in a while to do some, some things there. And, um, but it's been, uh, it's been, a, it's fun having some impact on some kids and some, uh, military and some dog lives. So it's been good. Very cool, Mike Bedato. I appreciate you coming on the program. Awesome. What a career. Uh, one of the best to ever do it. And as we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan, you got a question? I live in Chicago, Illinois over here, and we have the one of the, the original six, the Chicago Blackhawks. Patrick Kane just picked up his 1,200th career point. And the talk is, who is he up there with you as the, one of the greatest American-born players? Um, you know, certainly I think when his days are done, he's going to be probably the guy that, uh, you know, everybody else is going to be chasing. I think he'll, he'll probably come to uh, surpass my numbers and uh, be that leading U.S. goal scorer. I mean, his... Uh, He's got a great pedigree, great, uh, you know, cups and accolades and things that he's done his career and what he's done for Chicago. I'm certainly he's going to be uh, that guy that goes down as uh, who everybody looks up to in American hockey and who wants to uh, emulate. But, uh, you know, for me, it was always uh, Chelios, Chris Chelios, Brian Leach, uh, Joey Mullen, uh, Neil Broughton, um, you know, those guys, Pat LaFontaine. Um, guys of that, uh, my generation that kind of, uh, helped along the way. And a little bit of those 80 guys, you know, I played with some of those guys and against them. So that, that 80 miracle team was a big, uh, big impact. A lot of our lives growing up, uh, in Detroit, um, looking up to those guys too. So, um, but yeah, I said, yeah, I think, uh, he, Patty's going to be the one that everyone's chasing here soon. So do you believe in miracles? <laughs> yes all right thank you so yes, much thank I you. do thank you so much for coming on the podcast sir it was great you got it that's gonna do it for the brett boone podcast my name is dan levy the technical director producer voice of the boone podcast ep executive producer rich herrera digital all gets uploaded by liz landry do us a favor share the boone podcast neighbors and friends and all those that love sports make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boone 29 i'm dan levy bass on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one now